Hello and welcome. This is Learner Journeys with Bastian Kunz. A podcast about the craft and art of facilitating learning. Enjoy the show. Okay, season one is wrapped up. This is not part of season one anymore. But careful listeners will remember that Tatjana Fertelmeister at the end of her episode suggested that she might interview me. And so as I am preparing for season two and schedule the interviews and do the recordings and do the editing and so on, I thought I'd drop this episode in as a little bonus between the two seasons where I sat down with Tatjana and uh, she was the one asking all the questions and I was the one on the spot having to come up with smart answers. So without further ado. I am interviewing you, Bastien. So good, ev good evening to you from my morning in Chicago. Uh, and uh, I'm very excited about our conversation today because I have been fascinated by your work, uh, you know, um, writing the book uh, Learner's Journey and then, you know, having podcasts where you interview different learners who are facilitating other people's learnings. One of the common Russian questions is, tell me, how did you get to be where you are? <laughs> like just in very big terms, I, uh, I was with 15. I, I was in, a, um, in an international youth organization and, uh, and I was enchanted by that experience and I felt very much at home and I felt very much like I belong and I felt very much like I'm in the right place and and this feeling of of belonging had so much to do with just this person is from there and this person is from there and no one speaks their native language and no one does something that they would normally do at home. But everybody is kind of in this moment together doing crazy activities and having fun with each other and, and all of this stuff. Right. And I, I just felt very good with this potential of whatever happens here is what comes from within what we are here together. <laughs> and, and, And so I, I threw myself into this organization and I organized a lot of activities and I participated in a lot of activities. And then at some point I was at a workshop uh, where some other volunteers were training my group of people on, on something. And I learned that um, one of them was a full-time like, trainer and and running trainings in all kinds of settings and i thought wow people do that as a job like that's a job like that's a that's a thing people do and i thought wow this is uh, like i now i know what i want to do 
and uh, and so from that moment on, it was a fairly straight path. I, I went to university and studied intercultural communication and adult education. I continued to be very active in this organization. I continued to run workshops and take part in more workshops. And then I slowly started to also look outside of this organization. And I participated in a long-term training course on intercultural learning that the Council of Europe's Youth Directorate organized. And there I met people from all other kinds of organizations that did something similar, which I thought, wow, that's amazing. I thought what I'm experiencing, only people in my organization experience. But of course, that's not the case, right? So I, I suddenly saw all these different areas of non-formal education that I was unaware about before and then there were these trainers that were part of the pool of trainers from the Council of Europe and they did this training for and with us and I thought well that's amazing and so I you know tried to get onto a path where I could then be a part of that pool of trainers and and so I, I started my professional career then basically in the in the European international youth work field doing a lot around human rights education and intercultural learning and citizenship and participation and and such things and um yeah and then at some point i i started to be a father and i started to have kind of a family that i needed to support and i needed to earn a little more money and uh full-time working in the international youth field is very hard to make a living on that and so i um started to also work with and for corporations and run trainings for them and facilitate learning processes for them. And yeah, here we are today. Wonderful. And I'm still doing both. <laughs> Wonderful. What comes up for me as I'm listening to you is that on the learner's journey, it is very important uh, to have just the right person or right people who are there to lead you on this journey, yeah, to facilitate it, uh, sort of this combination of the learner and those who make this learning move forward. And it's not surprising that you are talking about your journey as somebody who facilitates other people's learning, yeah, more so than... Yeah, but I think it also had a lot to do with I continuously met people who who did something or who were thinking about something in a way where I thought, oh, I want to be able to think about this in this way or I want to be able to do something in this way and I I was striving to be like them you know like this these different role models that were influencing me not because they wanted to influence me but just because they were in a certain way like they existed in a certain way and i wanted to be able to exist in a similar way or find my way of being that way wonderful so talk to me about what is your understanding today as an active learner yourself, as an active learning facilitator yourself, as an author of this book uh, on uh, learner's journey, uh, how does one keep a learner's mind or a beginner's mind? 
no matter how uh, experienced, how knowledgeable you get along your own uh, learner's journey, um, how do people keep the learner's mind? I mean, I think the world is just so filled with mysteries, you know, like including ourselves, like I am very often a mystery to myself where I wonder, like, ah, I wonder why I think in this way about this. So I wonder why I do something in, in this, in this way and not in another way. Right. And there, there's no shortage of questions, right. In, in everybody's life or in everybody's reality. And, and sometimes I think it's, it's more about allowing someone to spend time with those questions or to allow those questions because a question is also a scary thing, right? It's much simpler to live in an environment or to exist in a state where you don't have unanswered questions. I think a lot of, I mean, I think that's what ideology and, and frankly, some versions of, of religiosity provide uh, the human condition is that it answers questions that are not really answerable or that are just too complex to answer very simply. And, but I think there is a big safety in this just ignoring questions as well. And I think as a, as an educator or as a trainer or as a facilitator, what, what we need to do is somehow create an environment that makes it safe to pay attention to those questions. Mm-hmm. Um, as you mentioned, ideology or even some forms of, uh, you know, religious kind of a practices or religious structures. Uh, my own unscientific theory about it is that human beings through our entire history needed something to help us deal with ambiguity yeah. and something that gives a clear prescription like an ideology or certain you know approach to religion uh, probably helps with that yeah yeah so how do and i am sure you've experienced it i've experienced it there are some ways of educating people that serves the same purpose where we are expected to just learn prescribed answers to things. And uh, being a learner and being a facilitator of somebody's learning with this sense of curiosity about ambiguity um, is a different kind of approach yeah it's a different dance so talk to me about that yeah it like i experience it very often when i run intercultural trainings for example that people enter with an expectation of okay you're going to tell me how to be with person from a from b from c and i'll be fine right just give me the instruction manual just give me the um like the do's and don'ts all i want is the do's and don'ts just you know feed me the answers please and then i'm out and thank you very much and so what i always at least try to do is turn this inward and nurture a curiosity about why have i ended up being who i am 
and what does culture have to do with that, right? And then if you understand how culture has had an influence on how you perceive the world and how you perceive the, like how you create reality and so on with a cultural influence, then it provides an understanding how someone else may have been just influenced in a different way. And that allows then for a curiosity or for an interest in the other without wanting an instruction manual on how to deal with this person in a good way, right? But that's not always easy. Like when I run a, a, a two-day training course on intercultural communication for a group of Germans, almost three quarters of the time we talk about German culture, German history, uh, German politics and so on it's not an intercultural training about other cultures it's talking to the germans about what it makes them like what is kind of specific about being german and sometimes there is some contra to that right because they don't want to talk about themselves they want to learn how to deal with others right but that's that then is the kind of the the trick or the the thing that we need to do is kind of open up this curiosity of the look in the mirror and the question of why am I like I am? Like what part of that is personality? What part of that is culture? What part of that is upbringing? What part of that is political orientation, et cetera, et cetera. Because by having this more nuanced view on yourself, it enables you to have a more nuanced view on others as well. And so this is... It's sometimes a struggle because some people are disappointed, but, uh, but some, like the most beautiful thing happened to me a couple of years ago where someone in the last round of a two day training course for German civil servants, not known for their, you know, like ease with ambiguity and complexity, um, where one of them said at the end, uh, you know, I came in here wanting just to have just answers on how to deal with people from certain cultures but I'm leaving this training with just allowing myself to just ask someone or being interested in other people and you know it's strange that I needed two days to get to that realization that that's an option but I'm very glad that I leave this training with this perspective now and so this was for me a really like yes <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. I love those light bulb moments. Yeah. Ah, yes. Uh, that's, you know, my, uh, my endorphin source. <laughs> uh, do you want a quick trick for situations yeah. like this? Sure. Uh, when somebody p wants me to give them, you know, like three things I need to know, um, I said, absolutely, I will give you the one and only list of three things that you need to know about X. When you give me the one and only list of three things anybody needs to know about you. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it becomes a little more complex than of course. describing yourself with just, with just three, three things. Uh, but also if you think about it, what is the other? For yeah. something to be the other, there has to be something that is kind of a point from where we are counting this otherness. Yeah. Uh, and that also kind of focuses people on, on who they, on who they are. Yeah. Like uh, who gets to be us. 
and okay. uh, and who then becomes them, mm -hmm. and who would and who do we need to be them so that we can feel like us? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how do we Because think it looks from their side when we are the other? Exactly. Yeah. Because no. otherness no. cannot exist by itself; it has to have at least two points uh, yeah. in that connection. You told me uh, that. A lot of your learning uh, has been kind of looking inward and uh, figuring out kind of what makes you you. Yeah. Um, if you can talk to me about the development of that learning, was that something that you were always curious about? Were you born this way, so to speak? Or did it kind of click at some point somewhere in your in your own development when the curiosity about the world around you uh, also led you to, okay, let's figure out what is this thing here that is me. Well, I think one important moment for me was when I was at this training course for intercultural learning at the Council of Europe. I was in my, after my first two years of university where I was studying intercultural communication and I thought I already know everything, right? And so I, I went into this feeling extremely competent and confident and I walked out of this uh, feeling a lot less confident and competent. And for me, that was one of the best learning experiences of my life, right? Where, um, you know, I, I grew up as a, as a white heterosexual male middle-class loving family environment, sm not small town, but also not big town, like reasonably sized town in North Germany. I was, I was never othered, right? I, I always completely fit in in all of the groups that just come with privilege. And so I, I rarely had opportunities to feel like I'm the, I'm the different one, right? And that's an experience of growing up that doesn't necessarily encourage self-reflection because you never have an experience of being different to most people around you. I always had uh, an experience of being very similar to most people around me, um, to belonging to all the major kind of dominant groups, right? And so it, it needed a time of, of spending time with people who were othered and becoming friends with them and becoming kind of emotionally connected with them that it, it pushed me outside of this comfort and really understanding how how I was benefiting from you know racist sexist patriarchal societal structures right and that um, and it certainly didn't come from just from within me right it, it, it needed me to have a really good gay friend or uh, it needed me to have a really good friend who had a darker skin than most people around him and to kind of have this emotional connection just to people who are suffering from something that I'm not suffering from right and and also or to just spend time with people who look like me 
and who behave like who belong to all these same dominant groups, but who question it more than me. And me admiring them for seeing that because I was blind to it. And so then thinking like, oh, I want to think about this like them because they are they're cool because they can think about this in this way that I'm not thinking about this. And I think those um, just these these role models and these people that I can look up to who come from a different starting point or from a similar starting point to me but who ended up in a different place that I consider to be better than where I am. I think that was a lot of the the motivating factors in this. Fascinating. Uh, when you said that you have never experienced being othered, um, there is a moment of privilege in it as well, yeah. because you have always been othered. You were just for a while oblivious to that yeah. experience of those who look at somebody like you as being other comparing to them. Yes, I was always in the dominant group. And so being othered didn't cause me danger. It didn't cause me fear. It didn't like reasonable fear. It didn't cause me uh, like... A lack of access to something. I, like I never had to care about being othered. Maybe let's put it that way. I never had to care about being othered because it never really negatively influenced my life from where I was looking at it from. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So those kind of learnings that uh, sort of push some kind of button inside of us and turn this light bulb on internally. Um, those are wonderful moments when we kind of reminisce about them. Having that moment right there in your body, having the discomfort of it, having all the mixed emotions of it, uh, is not the most comfortable moment. Yeah, It often comes when we experience our own shortcoming or we step on somebody's toes and being cold on it, whatever it is. Uh, so talk to me about the reality of discomfort in, in the learner's journey. I think it, it in retrospect, it, it's always not that bad right because you survived it in and you grew from it's it great. Right? Look what in retrospect is <laughs> fantastic uh in the moment it can have all kinds of emotions attached to it right discomfort shame uh i think shame is a big aspect of it um i think like just frustration or feeling misunderstood yourself Right, because you had good intentions and yet you made a mistake, or you thought you knew and you didn't, and and feeling like indignant about it that someone kind of now accuses you of this of incompetent or something like that. Right, there can be a defensive uh, aspect to it as well. 
and and that is just um it's just not nice and i think it's really important in those moments to have a source of safety that allows you to have a moment of okay i'm okay like i'm not really in danger <laughs> like technically speaking a moment where your amygdala can calm down and realize it's not under threat and allow kind of the prefrontal cortex to to get some energy back you know uh, and these moments of breathing or these moments of retreat i think are, are really important particularly in a moment when we go through something that is really dark and really difficult because otherwise it can really push us into a panic zone and 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 make us stop right make us escape from that right i think when you see people uh in the training room on their phone or just completely disengaging sometimes that may be an act of escapism right where they just say okay this is too hard for me to think about i need to just ignore it uh because it brings me to a place where i don't like myself and i don't want to be in that place and that you know it's it's a pity that some really simple questions can put someone into that state of defensiveness Uh, because maybe they've never been questioned like that before, or maybe they've never seen that part of themselves before or acknowledged that part of themselves. And so it, like it, this, this balance between the, the safety and the challenge, I think they are really important to kind of go in between those two back and forth so that we always have a, a chance to, to take a breath before the next uh, kind of challenge. What comes up for me as I hear you talk about it is that being a good person, being a decent person, is by itself very much a learner's journey. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a destination that I have arrived And now I'm a decent person. <laughs> That's kind of stationary. Uh, and if we are talking about the journey, then the sense of transition is such an important part of it. Yeah. And transition is about something ended and something new needs to start. And this period of figuring things out, this limbo of growing through the transition, you know, needs to, needs to happen. Yeah? Um, I wanted to ask you about a different kind of learner's journey. Yeah. Um, I am significantly ahead of you when it comes to children. My children are adults. <laughs> My grandchildren are teenagers. And for a long time now, I've learned to see parenting and grandparenting as very much a learner's journey where our children are the ones, which is a big surprise because we expect now finally I have somebody that, you know, I will be teaching and they will just have to learn from me. So talk to me about the learner's journey as as a man who has his own family, as a husband, 
to your wife and as a father to your children? What kind of learner's journey is that? I think the like the the biggest journey there goes inwards as well because one realization that I've had with my children I have a seven year old and a ten year old almost both um, is that the the biggest learning that they get from you is not what you tell them but who you are and how you are right and so if you allow yourself things and you don't allow them then kind of you have to deal with your own hypocrisy there or you have to allow them the things that you allow yourself as well or you have to be able to explain like no 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 i get to have this beverage now with dinner because it has alcohol in it and i'm allowed to drink alcohol and you're not because you're children um that's okay you know but if we say no we're only going to have sweets between friday and sunday And then on a Tuesday evening, I really want to have some chocolates in the evening when they are in bed and then they come out and they, you know, detect me. Um, then, you know, caught, they catch me in the act. Then it's, it's a matter of, yeah, uh, I know. Um, I, I broke the rule. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. Let, Let me ask you, what happens if you said I have a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old? Yeah. What happens in your perspective on this process of parenting and, you know, be, having your children? If you say, I have two children, one of them has had me for seven years so far, and the other has had me for 10 years so far when the agency of who is having whom switches, yeah. uh, does that change perspective in any way? Not necessarily because we kind of have each other. You know, it's it, it's not that they have me or that I have them, even though the second way is how we talk about it in, you know, general discourse. But uh, it it's a lot more dialectical no like uh we we have each other and we have to figure out with each other who we are going to be with each other and what we are able to give to each other and what we need from each other and so for like with my older daughter it's it's very easy in some regard because we both really like books and stories and from a very early age on i was reading her you know long big books that I was enjoying reading to her and she was enjoying listening to. And um, and the younger one, she it's a real struggle to for her to allow me to read her books with chapters. You know, she wants still those shorter books where you start and finish the story in one sitting and that's it. And there's lots of pictures. And it's just really boring for me. And it's uh, and I don't want to read her those books anymore because, you know, I kind of feel like, no, I work towards this point where we should be reading these bigger books now together and it's uh, it's still kind of this okay uh, what do I need from her what does she need from me and if this thing that I want to give to her is not something that she wants from me it's a lot more difficult for me to figure out what it is then that I should give to her you know like to to, to figure out who 
who do you need me to be with you? Like what version of me do you need me to be with you so that I can be my best fathering self with you, you know? Uh, isn't that interesting that each learner has their own way? Yeah, you experience it with two uh, girls there and you are willing to really go the distance because those are the girls you love and you will... When you are working with uh, people professionally, yeah, people yeah. whose learning journeys you are facilitating, yeah, yeah. Um, there are all kinds of learners there as well, and some of them yeah. want to learn exactly the way that is your pre preferred way, and others something completely different. So, what have you learned on your own journey that helps you? Um, manage that and facilitate uh, that uh, in a more learner-focused way, which I know you practice a lot. Yeah. I think in, in almost every group, there is going to be one or two people where we are just right for each other, you know, and it's, it's fantastic. It's great. They are there and they are ready to learn and they're open and they're curious and we have a similar sense of humor so when i make a joke they laugh when they make a joke i laugh and we're just having fun as we're on this journey together we're kind of in the same rhythm and it's probably maybe you've had this experience when you go on a hike with someone or when you go on a walk with someone when someone is a little faster than you it's exhausting when someone is a little slower than you it's exhausting but to be on a hike with someone or to go on a walk with someone and you both have the same rhythm you both have the same kind of walking speed it's really not tiring at all right and sometimes there are these training situations where the group and me were just not in the same rhythm and then it's really exhausting work you know then i need to either slow myself down because the people are not there because they want to be there and they are not there to give something from themselves, you know, like attention or care or openness, and they just want to get out again. <laughs> and then it's it's a lot harder. But when it's this back and forth and there's a relationship there, uh, then it's 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 a lot easier. But the professional competence is then to say, okay, I'm not only going to do my best when I feel great with these people anyway, but I'm also going to do my best when I need to invest more emotional labor because I have to empathize with someone who is very different to me. Or I have to empathize with someone who isn't interested in what I am here to share, right? And then it's it's more... Laborers, just simply. Um, as loving parents, we somehow manage to find joy in this strange way of walking with our children. Yeah, when definitely a little kid cannot walk with the same speed as you do, you know, but somehow it becomes not about speed, but about something else. So what is that something else and how does that happen or sometimes not happen when you work with 
adults for whom you care professionally, but it's definitely not the same way that we kind of care for our children. So talk to me about this secret thing there that sometimes shows up and sometimes not. I mean, with with small children, you give them like a a, a, a bike or a or a scooter or something like that, so that they can be as fast or faster than you, you know. Or you put them on the bicycle seat behind you so that you can go the speed that you want to go at. And so there is, you know, like these assistances uh, or these tools that you can use that bring them to your speed. Uh, and sometimes it's just, I mean, I admire the parents that can have a lot of fun playing with their children, doing something that they by themselves would not enjoy doing or can walk very slowly. I was never really that <laughs> kind of a parent. So I do get, you know, bored and annoyed and I think it's stupid and it's, um, and I'm also very, um, transparent with that with my children where my youngest daughter wants to play something with me and it's something that I really don't want to do. I say, this is not something that I want to, that I enjoy playing. Here are the things that I enjoy playing that I think you also enjoy playing. Maybe we can do this together because we can enjoy this together. You know, I'm not doing this just in your service, but I would also genuinely enjoy doing that. And I think so it's important to have these possibilities to adjust to one another and to figure out what is it that we together are enjoying doing together that are the best because we are doing it together, you know, and then they become a lot more fun. So as a facilitator of other people's learning, yeah, what do you do? When in the middle of that process, you feel bored or annoyed? It depends, right? If it's a group that I was asked to accompany on a journey that is really important for them and that I consider to be important as well, and this process that we go through is taxing but i think it's important then of course i go through it with them you know and i i think of it as okay this is something that needs to happen right now we need to get this out of the way so that we have a clear slate or a clean slate for what needs to happen next right but if i go in and i run a half day training on on something and i know the people for some, it's going to be valuable, and for some, it might not be. That's okay, you know. Like uh, it's it it depends really. Like it, my my favorite way of working is with a group of people that is at place A and that needs to go to place B, and they have asked me to come in and help them to get to place B. And then whatever happens on that journey, I'm on the I'm on board. I'm with them, you know because we're going somewhere together and it's relevant and meaningful. But sometimes to pay the bills, you got to 
run a kind of like an off-the-shelf training that is part of a larger curriculum and you just come in and you do the thing and then you go out and and that's okay you know like it's it, that's then the professional i i'm gonna do a very good job at this but i i also don't have to involve myself fully emotional in every single thing because not every single thing will have the reciprocity of being considered as important from the learners as well. Uh, absolutely. There are different kinds of learning engagements. And the interesting thing that I found in my own practice is that I am never alone in my feeling. And if I feel bored or I feel anxious or whatever it is that I feel, it's a feeling in the room. <laughs> <laughs> so this transparency that you are talking about is a risky thing to do when it's not being with our own children, but it is an amazingly interesting thing to do. So have you had these moments of transparency with your own adult learners? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd had moments where people were saying, Oh, you know what we all normally end our working day at this time, but the training is scheduled an hour and a half longer than what we normally are in the company for and uh and a lot of us have to like leave early because we have to still travel a long distance home or whatever. Can we finish earlier like and then I say, uh yeah. Like, uh, yes, we can, I uh, because I know from that moment on, you're not going to be here mentally anyway. And is it okay if we then make a slightly shorter lunch break? And then everybody's like, yes, that's cool. Like, please. And then we, you know, we negotiate this together. And I've had one or two situations where... Um, It was just then after the training, one of the participants would come to me and say like, um, yeah, I'm sorry that so many people were disengaged, but it's because this and this, but for me, it was a good training. And then I, I know like, okay, for that one person, it, it gave something. And that for me then is also enough, you know, like to, uh, to know that at least for one person that was meaningful, then I've, I've done my work, you know, and, uh, and but I've never like in the middle of the training say said it seems like the entire content of this is not something that resonates with you. Let's change it completely because there are others also other stakeholders that kind of need this content to be covered, you know. But particularly when it comes to to breaks and when breaks are and how long the breaks are, like some groups need longer breaks. Some groups get frustrated with long breaks. They want short breaks and be finished early. And so this is something that I'm very open always to discuss and negotiate. Uh, and I'm sure that as a facilitator, you have all kinds of scooters, so to speak, you know, yeah. to yeah. help people move, you know, all kinds of different activities that you offer that can uh, make the same content more more interesting. Um, so let me ask you this question. So what are you working on uh, right now? 
I um, started to to engage in a larger research project, actually, in in the framework of of making a PhD. And I I have to read a lot of academic papers, which is just difficult. And I'm going to, you know, I'm preparing for the field research right now. So I'm, I'm reading a lot of academic papers and preparing myself to figure out what the question is that hasn't been answered yet and that might be answered. And it was a long process of figuring out together with my promoter or supervisor on what it is that we're going to focus on. And, and I'm finally really happy with what it is that we're going to focus on because it's something that is incredibly interesting for me. So it's it's going to be about um, identity and particularly how people who live in, in transnational communities develop their sense of identity, particularly, uh, and are we going to look at that at the border between Poland and Germany? There's a couple of cities that in 45 became two cities on either side of the border and that for them a long time were just extremely separated from one another and that now belong to a borderless space which is the european union where there aren't existing borders anymore and so we want to look at what living in a borderless border space uh and how that influences the development of transnational identities or like just the transcendent identities. And we're going to look at what happens when then a global pandemic comes around and suddenly these borders that had been open for a bunch of years, basically non-existent anymore, are suddenly reappearing and people can't go over the border again. And what that happens, does it strengthen the transnational identity? Does it make it weaker? Does it not influence it at all? Et cetera, et cetera. So this is something that is uh, really exciting, but it's also really scary because I'm I'm not good at academic writing necessarily. Like I, I still have to figure out what my voice is when I write academically. I know how I write when I write non-academically, but to figure out how I write when I write academically is still something that I need to find my voice in. And uh, also reading all these papers is just um, sometimes really hard labor, but it's also nice pushing myself, you know. Uh, that is amazingly interesting. Can't wait to see what comes out of it. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> And and as a person who comes from Russia, the culture where we give unsolicited advice, uh, yeah? <clears throat> let me give you unsolicited advice. First of all, every time you read an academic paper or you think about writing an academic paper, take a moment to experience empathy to your seven-year-old for whom your chapter books feel like academic papers, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and to recognize that you also want the academic equivalent of short books with pictures, you know, <laughs> so that might be an interesting exercise. But also, as you do this work, being a German person living in Poland, keep a journal of how your experience of, your, of the internal borders uh, 
kind of uh, resonating with what you're learning and what you're experiencing because it can be and will be definitely it will be such a powerful personal learner journey for you as well as you know the academic figuring out uh, you know for all these people how it happens for them so that you might find some respite from academic writing into writing the second part of your learner's journey on the side, <laughs> kind of looking at, at your own uh, experience with that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank it you. was indeed very enjoyable to um, interview you and to um, kind of push you a little bit. <laughs> yeah, not much not much of a pushing for somebody who is so used to uh, pushing himself well she did push me a bit but not too bad talking with Tatiana is always a really special and wonderful experience and I'm really glad that she invited herself to interview me on this podcast and turn the table and as scary as it was to be a guest and have to edit my own self on this podcast it was still a really nice experience and i hope that it was valuable for you as well as you were listening to this i am at work to get season two of Learner Journeys up and running. I already had some really exciting interviews and I'm scheduling some more really exciting interviews. So, as I said before, keep your subscription to this feed and come September, you will have new episodes appearing of Learner Journeys in your podcast. And until then, thank you again for allowing me in your ear and see you soon. Bye.